Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, Another season of Finding Your Roots has begun on PBS. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to the host, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, about what's in store for us this season and this week. That's all in this episode of Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome back, America. It is America's Family History Show. Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Well, great to have you aboard again for this weekend. we got some great guests today because we got a lot of interesting and important things happening right now in the field of family history. First of all, we got Dr. Henry Louis Gates back from the PBS show Finding Your Roots. The uh, season has resumed, and he's going to fill us in on the latest episode and the next one coming up. And then after that, Josh Taylor is going to be here. He is the president of the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society, and there are problems in New York. And if you have any reason to ever want a record out of New York, you're going to want to hear what he has to say, because people tied into the municipal archives there are wanting to license public records. Yeah, so if you wanted to put something in a talk or maybe even post an image of a document onto a page on a website, you might have to get licensed to do that. So there's a lot of issues there and you might be able to help battle this problem. We'll get to Josh later on in the show. Hey, don't forget to sign up for our weekly Genie newsletter. You can do it right now. Go to ExtremeGenes.com or go to our Facebook page. You get a blog from me each week, a couple of links to shows past and present, and links to stories that you'll find fascinating as a family historian and speaking of which it's time we got our family histoire news and that's why we go to david allen lambert he is the chief genealogist of the new england historic genealogical society and americanancestors.org at home well masked in stoughton massachusetts how are you dave i'm unmasking so i can talk to you now. <laughs> hey we how got you doing friend you know i have been really busy here i got a buddy of mine i've been trying to help use dna to help him identify the parents of his maternal grandfather and oh. we've we figured out one network and we identified who the grandparents are but we don't know whether it's the grandparents to the mother or the father of his grandfather we're only having to narrow down from 12 children to one <laughs> and it's oh. taking a lot of time well i'll tell you not everybody has grandparents that are too difficult to find especially when your grandfather was the 10th president of the united states and in fact on september 26th at the age of 95 lion gardner tyler jr the grandson of president john tyler yeah the 10th <laughs> u.s president died but don't feel too bad not all of president tyler's grandchildren are gone because lion's younger brother who was born in 1928, Harrison Ruffin Tyler, is still alive. Now, this is incredible because President Tyler was born in 1790. George Washington died when he was nine years old. He was in primary school at that point, went on to become president. And Dave, I don't think there are a lot of people who can say that about their grandfather. Uh, No, not really. (laughs) I mean, I can tell you, I can remember being a young teenager and writing to Grover Cleveland's son, who was born when the president was in his 60s, and talking to him on the phone up in Tamworth, New Hampshire, Francis Grover Cleveland didn't remember dad very well. (laughs) You know, how many people could say their dad was president 
twice. <laughs> right. Exactly. With yeah. a little rest in between. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm going to go back a little further in family history news, and I don't know how many of you have used 23andMe and found out how much Neanderthal you have in your DNA. I can tell you that one of my sisters has more than me, and I always said that's the reason she could climb the heck out of trees. <laughs> but now they're saying that people that are suffering from COVID-19 have some direct tie with their Neanderthal ancestors. The DNA strand is found on chromosome 3, which is susceptible to severe reactions to COVID-19. So wow. if you do have a higher Neanderthal tendency than others, it may be something to be concerned about. This is a story you'll find on ExtremeGenes.com. That's incredible. Very scary. You know, the one thing I always find is remarkable is when you sit down and if you ever tell your grandkids or your kids, you know, how many ancestors exponentially you have, you know, two parents and four grandparents and eight great grandparents. And, you know, it's amazing. But then when you stop to think of 800 to 1,000 years ago in the 33rd generation, you have like 8 billion ancestors conceivably. Whoa. but. The word endogamy, yes, that's the two-cent word for the day, kids, means that probably you have more people in your family tree that are related to you more than once or oh, twice. of course. Or maybe multiple times. Scientific American has a great article, which you'll find on Family History News, called Humans Are All More Closely Related Than We Commonly Think. Hey, I'm related to Charlemagne. Are you fish? Yes, I am, as a matter of fact. You're my cousin, finally. <laughs> Congratulations. Finally. <laughs> well, this is, for people who aren't familiar with it, this is the term that they call pedigree collapse. And the exactly. idea is that as you go back, the number of ancestors that you have, if they were all unique individuals, well, there would be more of them than the population of the planet ever. <laughs> and so as a result of this, your family tree, if you had an identity for all these people, you'd start to see the same people showing up. And what David's saying is you'll see them showing up over and over and over mm -hmm. again. So you might not like your ancestors, but they're there and sometimes many times over. <laughs> So you think just erasing one name from your family tree is going to be easy? Yeah, try 30 generations back. You mm -hmm. might have line after line after line of the same one. You know, there's always exciting things in technology, and my heritage has really done a lot this year. I mean, they've gone from colorizing your old photographs on their website to being able to sharpen up the detail and see detail that you never saw in that old blurry photo. But now they're teaming with a company called Mixtiles, where you can go right to your MyHeritage account, click on a photo, and you can order up 8 by 8 photo collage tiles that can be put on your wall, mixed and matched, and changed around, and you can move them all over. I think that's a great idea. And, you know, MyHeritage has done an incredible job of finding things that we all love. And I tell you, I use that enhancement tool on photographs all the time. All right. Thank you, David. Talk to you in just a little bit. It's been a long time since I talked to Dr. Henry Louis Gates from PBS. Of course, he of Finding Your Roots fame, and it's the second half of season six is underway again. And uh, Dr. Gates, it's great to have you again. It's great to hear your voice, and I'm glad you and your family are healthy. And my thoughts go out to all our fellow Americans who have been dealing with the pandemic. Boy, it's and been a mess. I'm, I'm sending them my best wishes. We, uh, of course, shut down in March when. Harvard, my day job, when we sent the students home, all production at PBS and at every other network was suspended. But then we figured out under COVID protocols 
how to continue. And we have. So we finished the second half of season six, and we have six episodes coming up. The episode on Tuesday, October 13th. One of our most exciting featured Diane von Furstenberg, Narcisso Rodriguez, and the inimitable RuPaul Charles. And then this Tuesday, October 20th, DNA Mysteries with Taya Leone and Joe Madison. Ooh. And then we will then continue into January with Gail King, Jordan Peele, Issa Rae, and then Scott, Tuesday, January 12th, Nora O'Donnell, Zach Posen, and Nancy Pelosi. Ah, boy, you are loaded up with some interesting figures, some controversial figures, but I'm sure they're all amazing when you dig into their roots. And, well, tell us some of the, the highlights of the season we're looking forward to. Now, we got the 13th is behind us. The next episode's coming up on Tuesday, the 20th. Tell us mm-hmm. a little about that episode. Okay. This episode involves, I mean, you talk about extreme genes, DNA <laughs> mysteries for actor Taya Leone and radio host Joe Madison, identifying parents and grandparents whose names they'd never heard before. Taya's mother's name is Emily Patterson, and Emily Patterson was adopted as a six-week-old baby and never learned the names of her biological parents. With no paper records at all to guide us, our great genetic genealogist, C.C. Moore, compared Emily's DNA to the DNA of people in multiple databases, hoping to find a close relationship. And Cece eventually narrowed the maternal candidates down to a set of sisters, Irene and Abilene Gindrat, G-I-N-D-R-A-T-T. Wow. Now, Abilene's daughter agreed to take a DNA test, and the results proved that Abilene was Emily's mother and Taya's biological grandmother. Now, this was something she did not know her entire life, and Taya kept saying to her, Mom, let Finding Your Roots try to find your biological mother. And they it took a long time. And finally, with great reluctance, Emily said, go for it. And Cece found her, man. And then Cece was then able, as if that wasn't a miracle enough, to use the same process to identify Emily's biological father, a man named Sumter Daniel. And guess what? Using census records and local newspaper accounts, we were able to surmise that Sumter and Abilene likely met in the tiny town of Elizabeth, Louisiana, where in 1940, Abilene worked as a school teacher while Sumter worked at a paper mill, and they both lived in the same boarding house ah. with 10 school teachers. <laughs> now, how about that for some, <laughs> for some remarkable research? That's some and, sleuthing, isn't it? Oh, Taya was moved to tears, and so was her mother. And then, Scott, it turned out that Taya's grandmother, Emily's mother, was still alive. Oh, no, you're kidding me. Stop yes. it. Yes. Would she have and to we, be like 100 years old? She was in her 90s. Unfortunately, she had dementia. But we connected them. We didn't film it, of course. That's very private. But we arranged for Taya's mother, Emily, to meet her biological mother after all those wow wow what an experience that had to be for her did taya go with her oh yes and and taya's daughter wow four generations so they could get a four generation picture yeah and they met the two sisters remember we needed uh, yes abilene's daughter to take the test to see which was which and they did and sumter's son reached out to taya 
And he was reluctant initially to cooperate. People, if they haven't seen the series, they don't want it to uh, be sensationalized. But once he saw the series, he was so moved that Sumter Jr. and Taya established a relationship. And I just found out yesterday from Taya, who's become a very good friend, that Sumter just succumbed to uh, COVID. Oh, no. So we were able to restore all of this information in time for Sumter about his father and introduce him to his half-sister, who is uh, Emily Patterson. And we also were able to find out, incredibly, that the Sumter family traced back from Taya to her sixth great-grandfather, a man named John O'Daniel, who was born in Virginia around 1718, grew up to be a prominent landowner, and guess who his next-door neighbor was? No idea. George Washington, man. <laughs> GW himself. Wow. Himself. And like Washington, he was a slave owner. Oh, boy. According to, according to his will, he distributed 23 slaves among his second wife and their nine adult children. We were able to trace Taya's family back to her 39th great-grandfather. <laughs> what? Oh, that's insane. Yes. Oh, this is going to yes. be an incredible episode. Incredible. And on her mom's side, to her seventh great-grandfather, William O'Daniel, likely born in Ireland in 1691. Now, Joe Madison grew up believing that his father was a, a man named Felix Edward Madison, whom he knew. But when we did the DNA test, it was obvious, quickly apparent, that Felix was not actually Joe's ooh, father. Ooh, that's a harsh thing to have to tell somebody. I've had uh, two or three occasions where I've had to tell people your dad wasn't your dad. How did he take that? Well, we have a protocol when we can't reveal this information live, as sure, it were. Sure, of course. And I have to call him. Uh, we say two things. Joe, we have found information that will forever alter your understanding of your family. Do you want to know it or not? And then when he said yes, I said, well, your father, the man you called your father, was not your biological father. And he said, are you sure? And I said, we are absolutely sure. And I said, I'm sorry, I have to be the person to tell you. And then I said, do you want to be in this series and find out about him? And he said, of course. Wow. And he did. And so we told him that his father was a man named Herman Haygood. And when I showed Joe his picture, Joe said, I remember seeing this man. And then we introduced Joe to his biological grandparents, Andrew Haywood Sr. and Lila Green. And we revealed that his grandfather was part of the infamous Tuskegee study on untreated syphilis. Do you remember that when they... <laughs> I, uh, I don't, but I'm, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to oh, get an education here. Oh, Scott, it was terrible. They took a group of black men in Tuskegee, Alabama, and they had the cure for syphilis. And they gave part of this group um, placebo just so they could study the long-term effects of untreated syphilis. It is one of the horrific examples yeah. of the misuse of science. And it's very famous among black people and among medical researchers to prevent anything like this ever happening yes. again. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. But then we traced Andrew Haygood's family and we showed him living with his mother, Emma Tompkins, and he and his siblings all had the surname Tompkins, not Haygood. And the census showed that his mother was black and their white father was living next door. And both of his parents were marked as single on the census. 
you know, it was illegal for an interracial couple to get married. Right. So they just established their relationship by living next door. And Lemuel gave his mixed race children his surname. And service records show that this Lemuel Haygood was a Confederate soldier, even more ironic. Wow. A Confederate soldier has children with a black woman and gives them his name and obviously supports them. And we talk about his involvement in the Civil War and reveal that he fought at Gettysburg and was captured as Lee's army retreated after the battle. And then we went and ended with the story of Joe's fourth great grandfather, a man named Samuel Clegg, who was a loyalist during the American Revolution. And that Boy, you have fight. covered a huge amount of ground here. This is unbelievable. Yeah, it means that he did not side with the Patriots. He decided with the Brits and he was captured. And you ready for this? Executed by Patriots in South Carolina. Ooh. And so we were able to trace Joe's family back to his fifth great grandfather, who was born in Germany on his father's line, and on his mother's line to his fourth great grandfather, Joseph Pelly, who was likely born in the 1760s in England. So it is an amazing episode about the miraculous uses of DNA yes. to resolve issues of paternity and family heritage. Well, let's face it, uh, America has just done a huge, massive paternity test, and it's available for pretty much anybody who wants to really find out where they come from. And when you consider there's 18 million DNA test results now on Ancestry alone. Right. And, you know, there are a lot of support groups, and anyone listening to this should look at our website and write to us if they're struggling with this information, because you actually, as soon as you click on your website sent to you by one of the prominent DNA companies, you can tell if your mother or father are really your mother or father. Yes. And then a, a lot of adoptees turn to us for help, and we refer them to C.C. Moore, who is the world's leading, as far as we're concerned, oh, yes. <laughs> genetic genealogist. But there are a lot of support groups. Well, Dr. Gates, this is a great season. Now, this runs into January, and then you pick up with season seven. And yes. uh, we're going to touch base with you each week about uh, the upcoming episodes and uh, really look forward to seeing it. And, of course, for anybody wanting to watch, it's Finding Your Roots. It's on PBS on Tuesday nights. Check your local listings for times. Dr. Gates, talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining me. Okay, my brother. You take care. There is more trouble brewing in New York City concerning records and i've got my friend uh, josh taylor on he is of course the president of the new york genealogical and biographical society and josh welcome back fill us in on what's going on with the department of records and info services doris for short doris is kind of turning into a little karen here it seems to me <laughs> yeah we're having a bit of an issue in new york city thanks for having me on and letting me talk about this important issue and for anyone that does New York City research, you probably have encountered Doris before because Doris manages the municipal archives, which hold yes. essentially New York City's archives from the 1600s all, all the way up. And it's fabulous, and, by the way, we should mention. I mean, it's just loaded with incredible material. So much in there that I cannot wait for the day to come where they've got it all digitized and indexed. That's going to be a long <laughs> way off. <laughs> right, it, exactly. But I think that, you know that's a really important point is that genealogists and historians use those materials all the time and there's millions of pages <laughs> in there to be found and right now so, they're talking about raising their rates but not in a way that is common 
Right. So they're proposing an increase for photocopies, for reproductions, and, you know, for the record, we don't object when an archive has to raise its fees within a reasonable amount to cover expenses. That, sure. That's, that's understandable. What they are doing, on the other hand, is they seem to be cementing a practice they've had for a long time that requires licensing to actually use public records. Help and, me help me understand that. Licensing? License who? <laughs> well, that's the, the, the million-dollar question here. So essentially, if you want to reproduce a record from the public archive, right? So if, if yeah. you let's, – let's say that you ordered something and you want to put it on your blog, you want to put it in a, in a magazine, you have to basically fill out a form and pay a fee that begins at $15 to license that item to use. The form is called license slash permission to use. Oh, boy. And the way that the proposed changes have been written – they really solidify that for educational, for scholarly, and for nonprofit product use, and even for media use, by the way, oh boy. you have to apply for and pay for this license. Wait a minute. This is just, I, I had Brooke Gans on the show from Reclaim the Records not long ago, and she was talking about winning a court case there in Missouri. And she was able to obtain conversations that were done over email and, and text messages about why they wanted to do things the way they wanted to do. And the reason was they were selling these materials and taking the revenues and putting it back in their budget. Now, these were public records. It was in complete violation of the laws in Missouri about public records. This sounds exactly the same. You know, it, it potentially is a, is a very similar issue. There's a question of commercial licensing, and that certainly is where you know, the archives right now in, in New York City, on their website, they say things like permission required for commercial use, and that's almost a, a different issue. It's, it's sort of the license that's being required for essentially other use of these records. I mean, to, to put them in a lecture, potentially to put them in an online family tree, right? In, in anything that would require sort of your use of those records, potentially the way the language is written now could fall under this license. Well, what about things that have already been posted on family trees from the municipal archives? Are they going to go back and try to find you and then charge you for it? That's a good question. So to be completely fair to the archives, when this issue came up and people started emailing them about it and asking questions, they received a response that said, you know, this is a misunderstanding. We never intended to license genealogy materials for personal use and that all this is doing is sort of elevating the fees and they understood the language was unclear. And so they've said in email that they will clarify the language for the, the final version. Really? With how much time to go before the final version? <laughs> well, that, that, a public comment period ends October 23rd. And so sometime between that point and when the final rules are published, they would clarify the language. But they're actually not required to consult anyone or have another public hearing on the final language. So they could have the hearing on the 23rd. And we might never see the final version until it's printed up and officially on the books. Okay. Wow. So, you know, this really can affect anybody in America because so many people, so many of our ancestors came through New York City, whether it's through Ellis Island or they were settlers there when it was New Amsterdam. And not only that, Josh, I'm just frightened by the potential precedent here that could be set by them getting away with something like this. Right. I mean, if, you know, if you consider that the language they use is education, scholarly, media, you know, et cetera, that, that, that sort of use, that means that even a, an amendment that says, well, you can use it for genealogical use, 
Well, geological use encompasses a number of different documents. Sure. What about the historians? What about members of the press? What about scholars that are they're studying and using these records and tracing the history of New York City? That The limitations are frightening, in, in my mind, yes. of what this could do. And the biggest problem, just so everybody's very clear on this, these are public records. This means they were generated on our behalf. We already paid to have them made. We cannot be charged <laughs> to use them. Right. We paid for their creation. We're paying for their maintenance and we're paying to get a reproduction of it. And, you know, the municipal archives is not a private archive. It's a whole different category. And this is a problem because these people all talk to one another and uh, they're looking for more and more ways to create revenue and they're not going about it the right way. So the question is, Josh, what can we as genealogists and family historians and historians do to help keep this uh, situation from getting out of hand? Well, the easiest thing to do to help in this situation, the NYGNB, the New York Geological and Biographical Society, if you go to the homepage at newyorkfamilyhistory.org, there's a link to a page that will give you the details and really spotlights four actions that you can take. So number one, you can submit a comment directly to Doris as part of the public comment period. We'd like to ask you to consider when you're submitting your comment this, this isn't necessarily about the amount of money that's being charged. It's about the principle of licensing public records exactly. for educational scholarly use. That, that, that's the big issue. So you can, you can submit your own comment, and it's very, very important, even with the promises that they're going to clean up the language, we need to make sure that our objections are in the public record. Mm-hmm. So yes. that's, that's action number one. Action number two, the NYGNB has a public comment that we will submit sort of on everyone's behalf. If you read that comment and you agree with it, you can add your name and we'll submit that on your behalf on October 23rd. The third thing is there is a hearing at 11 a.m. Eastern on Friday, October 23rd. This is the public hearing and it's online and the instructions to join the meeting are, are available. So you can go in. It's a WebEx meeting. You can attend from anywhere and you could also sign up to speak at the meeting, but you have to sign up in advance. So if you want to speak, they are letting individuals speak for up to three minutes about the proposed rules at that meeting. And then the fourth thing is to share this information with others, especially those who might not necessarily just be genealogists, but would be interested in how this impacts research at large within the records of the municipal archives. So try and extend this reach outside of just the genealogical community into historians, biographers, and others, anyone that you could think of that would use these records. Okay. Oh, it's coming up on us really quick here, and this is uh, really quite frightening. It is. They usually have a 30-day period for this, and I've been so grateful for other communities and societies that have jumped on this and and spread the word. But yeah, it's coming up very, very quickly. All right. Josh Taylor, president of the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society. Thanks for filling us in on Doris and the mess that's going on in New York City and what we can do about it. And uh, hopefully everybody will jump on and follow some of those tips. Appreciate it, Josh. Talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right, it is time to answer your questions. It's Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show. I am Fisher, your radio root sleuth. David Allen Lambert is back from the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Are you ready, David? 
I am. All right. Our first question today comes from Lainey Richards in Chicago, and she says, uh, Fish and Dave, I am pondering whether or not to spend $80 for my Civil War ancestors' records. Would it be worth it? What might I get? Great question, David. You work with these all the time. I would say the $80 is well worth it. Hands down, if you can't afford it, do a GoFundMe with your family for a holiday gift because they're time capsules. Yep. Hands down, the Civil War pension can have anything you can imagine from the medical reasons why they had a pension or financial reasons. You're going to get doctor's reports. You're going to get affidavits from people who served in the military with your ancestor. And these are going to give you details about the battles that they were in, or maybe your ancestor was in a camp hospital. You're going to get certificates. You won't have to buy copies from the state. Maybe your ancestor's marriage record or his death record. And if the widow survived him or if he oh, had yeah. dependent children, those records are there. Bible um, records even, sometimes. The ones that blow my mind away are the ones that are the mother or father's pensions because the parents had to actually send in letters from the child stating that they were sending money home. And these letters are never returned. So to me, they're like untapped. There has to be wow. a college student that could just get in there and just look at mother and father pensions as they start getting digitized, and you can write a whole book, because these are unpublished letters from the Civil War. Wow. That's amazing. And, uh, you know, I did this with my wife's Civil War ancestor long ago, mm -hmm. and they actually brought the file into the Veterans Administration. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The guy wouldn't leave the desk as we went through and held these things in our hands and went through it item by item. There was testimony in there from the guys who served in the same unit as my wife's ancestor, and they all signed this statement as to how he was killed in battle in Georgia as General Sherman's army was sweeping south through Georgia. It's that move to push the Confederates into the sea. And uh, it was just before all that happened, he was driving a supply wagon at the tail end of Sherman's army, and some Confederate cavalry came in and shot him off the top of that. And there was so much confusion at the time, they never wound up burying him, and they never knew what happened to him after that. It's amazing because, you know, up until recently, we still had children of Civil War veterans uh, that were getting in the news. In fact, the last pensioned Civil War child just died this year, and uh, we had that uh, as a news story. So and the Civil War wasn't that long ago. You no. know, you have people who died in it nearly a hundred and going on 160 years ago now. Yeah, almost. that's right. Yeah, and it's true. I, I remember talking to aunts and uncles who used to watch the Civil War soldiers march in the veterans parades as old men, you know. So, you know, when you get into it generationally, when you get into it as a family historian, you start to realize, well, that's just three, four generations ago. That's it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's why some of the stories are still so fresh in certain families as as the tales are passed on down. So, it, yes, in answer to your question, Laney, spend the 80 bucks. The only thing I would advise you right now is make sure you know when you can get that file, because I'm sure there's a huge backlog due to the pandemic. And that could uh, really slow things down a little bit. But good luck with that, because you're likely to get some amazing stuff out of it. 
All right, here we go. It is our final question on Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. Fisher here, your radio root sleuth. David Allen Lambert is with us. And uh, David, our question today comes from Michael Smith in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And he says, uh, Fisher and David, I was looking for the death certificate of an ancestor in upstate New York who died in 1867, and there weren't any. Where do I go next? David, what do you think? Well, I mean, as a rule, New York State doesn't even start having death records until the 1880s decade. So you're going to be off by at least, you know, 15 years, 20 years of when you're going to commonly see death records for upstate New York. There are other options, though. Well, first off, so many newspapers are keeping us up late at night. You can find death notices, sometimes obituaries in local or county papers. That's one thing. I mean, yep. how about a probate on Family Search? I mean, so many probates for New York that are available now, or even on Ancestry.com. Locating a probate case can often tell you the date of death and where the person died. I mean, gravestones, find yep. a grave, billion graves. I mean, there's so many other options. How about you, Fisher? What did you use? Oh, family Bibles are fabulous if you mm-hmm. can get a hold of them. And uh, obviously other people's family trees, because maybe the family Bible went down the branch of a third cousin of yours. And so there are places to look there. You can look on uh, all the other sites. Check out the trees there. See what other people have found. Because, you know, sometimes a record only exists in one household. In fact, I can tell you that in 1990, I tracked some relatives down in Minnesota. And uh, when I was there, he had a whole bunch of old family documents. And on the back of one was written the name of my third great-grandmother. And it gave her birth date under it, written in light pencil. That is the only existing record of her birth date that we've ever found. Even her christening was not registered in England before she came over to New York. You know, and that's true. I mean, a lot of times local historical societies or county historical societies will have account books. How about the person who made the casket for your ancestor? That's a record of when they died, obviously. Sure. Maybe doctor's bills or better yet, funeral home or undertaker records for the services. I mean, there's so many different layers of this. I give a lecture called Beyond the Death Record, and this kind of brings into a whole bunch of different things I talk about that we've just discussed, and there's so many more. Yeah, you can't even really think of what they all would be. (laughs) I could go probably through a bunch of these histories I've put together on different branches of the family and realize, oh, yeah, I got one this way and I got one that way. In fact, for instance, I inherited a newspaper clipping of the death of the man that married my great-grandparents in Utah. Uh And my great-grandfather wrote at the top, this man married us and he put the marriage date on there. Now, if I didn't have the marriage date, that would have been terrific. A a first-hand account in the handwriting of my great-grandfather as to when they got married. Back even further, sometimes we know somebody wrote their will, and it was a year or so later that the will was proved. Or better yet, a woman has a child born to her, and she doesn't show up in her husband's will five years later. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a variety of ways of looking between years, too that you may not have a death record in every instance, but you can kind of narrow down the window smaller and smaller if you look at other records. I'll tell you, I'm still filling in complete dates to this day on material I initially started gathering back in the 80s. And it just works that way because there's so many things out there. Well, there is. In genealogy, the analogy I use is like wet cement. I hope it's never cured and never finished because I still like the thrill of the chase. There you go. 
David, thanks so much. Talk to you next week. All right, my friend. And thank you, Genies, for joining us today. Thanks once again to Dr. Henry Louis Gates for coming on, to Josh Taylor, the president of the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.